0: Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. For co-directors Daniel Schmidt and Gabriel Albrantes, the making of Diamantino was just as, if not more complex, than the award-winning film's Insane Plot. It tells the story of Diamantino, the world's premier soccer star, who loses his special touch and ends his career in disgrace. Searching for a new purpose, the international icon sets on a delirious odyssey where he confronts neo-fascism, the refugee crisis, genetic modification, and the hunt for the source of genius. That's a whole lot of ground to cover within the confines of an hour and a half, and after seeing the first assembly of their cut, the duo was dismayed and ready to throw in the towel. Even during production, Schmidt felt as if they had bit off a little more than they could chew. Unhappy, they walked away from their project and decided to regroup at a later date. Ultimately, they came to realize that they still had a fair amount of interesting material they felt they could work with, and that their failures could, through the magic of post-production, be turned into an avant-garde tour de force. Using stock imagery, frenetic archival footage, and green-screen wizardry, they spliced together a cut worthy of Cannes, New York Film Festival, the Toronto International Film Festival, and more. I sat down with Schmidt prior to Diamantino's screening at TIFF, and we talked about adapting to difficult circumstances learning from mistakes, and never giving up hope on your vision. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. This is John Fisco, and I'm here with Daniel Schmidt of Hi. Diamantino, um, which is a crazy <laughs> feature that's playing here at TIFF this year. Um, and it was at Cannes earlier this year. And you guys took home a couple awards from Cannes. What, what awards were those? We got, like, the second prize for the best... D-
1: puppy best best dog which is called like the
0: oh is that what that was yeah. the, bar, the,
1: the bark the I don't know um palm dog I think palm? yeah so we got the grand prix <laughs> for that and then we got the top prize um for the section that we were in which is
0: critics week uh which was a, a, a huge surprise and that a yeah that's big awesome. honor and, yeah how uh what are you in what section are you here uh at TIFF we're
1: in a section called Midnight Madness, uh, which is a sort of they, they show the movies at midnight to a very like lively audience. I just went to uh, a screening of, of of another film in the section last night and people are like applauding at the ads yeah. and they're sort of like they've got like it's a really um, it's really kind of vital and crazy. so I'm kind of nervous to do that but uh, I think it's mostly themed towards like, genre films and maybe a sort of expanded notion of of what that could be or certainly with our film i feel like <laughs> it's like our film predator halloween yeah like i don't know a climax is climax in there. yeah i don't know how we fit in but
0: i i do i it's i think there's a certain like level of cult uh status that comes along with these pictures and your film is certainly unique um and as is i guess your your situation as a filmmaker you you're an american by birth right but you're making very european films it seems um so i was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about like how you got to this uh point in your career where you're uh you're living in lisbon right you're you're in portugal or is that your your co-director
1: yeah so my co-director is is a little bit less of an imposter he's He's actually half American, half, or he's, you know, he's a dual national citizen or whatever of Portugal and of uh, of America. Um, he spent most of his upbringing in America, and he's a very, I think that one of the first things that sort of brought us together as collaborators, we've been working together on and off for the past almost nine years or something like that, wow. was a sort of appetite for playing with, like, a Hollywood imagery and sort of... Uh, Investigating that, and um, so he's he's very much coming from a sort of American uh, perspective, and 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 uh, upbringing in 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 Hollywood cinema, and myself as well. But of course, you know, our appetites took us to a broader, or somewhat broader view to to look at other world cinema. And when we started making projects, even our very first project was filmed in Brazil, we've done films together and separately like in Angola, Sri Lanka China, Puerto Rico Uh, and I think we're sort of drawn to seeing how certainly how these local cultures and how how local cinemas also uh, interrelate with like the Hollywood sort of system in this sort of post global age so that, that that Interest in 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 globalism and and in in transnationality, but um, but in, in regards with with image making and, and with movie making, has sort of set us off on this tangent where we've been making films in different places, and then I think another aspect which is uh, you know can't go unmentioned is um, is the financing opportunities, and again because we are so interested in playing with and subverting and uh sort of immersing audiences in uh these uh, you know the language of hollywood cinema um to do so in america what better place to make hollywood movies than in (laughs) hollywood but it's just it doesn't i don't think we have that the talent or the know-how uh to crack into that system or the patience or whatever uh and so we started looking for other forms of financing and doing stuff, whether it's through gallery financing or, um, yeah, just, I guess, sort of unconventional financing structures has has been important to us. But the European model and the rest of the world offers uh, or can offer sometimes, uh, they have a sort of socialized cinema where uh, you compete for government grants and a oh. bureaucracy grants you the, the finances to make... A film, and this is really the first film that we've done in that way, maybe the last film that they let us do this way, but um, but that that I think practicality uh, of, of, of following the money is is part of it. Yeah.
0: So, what was that experience like competing for this grant? Like, what did you have to uh, you know present to the government in order to win them over? Um, I think with a lot of these things, you basically just present
1: a script in your own sort of CV and then uh you have to uh, partner up with um a producer who's sort of like going to be the person who well yeah is the producer is dealing with the, is ultimately financially responsible so we ended up pairing up with a uh, an established producer in Portugal and did then did similarly in in France and Brazil This sort of co-production structure of trying to again you're never getting to um hollywood budget not even a low budget hollywood film but you're able to like at least get a little bit more money than to just make a movie in the cafe or whatever i i think it varies country by country in france it's very um uh i mean the french cinema economy is very healthy from at least a certain perspective and i think that it's also very competitive and they really really review the scripts very, very carefully and I think they turned us down two or three times yeah. or something like that. Whereas in Portugal, and I've heard things are shifting, but Portugal, which seems to be going through somewhat of a renaissance, though I think it's always been kind of like uh, the vanguard of like pretty interesting cinema, uh, it seems like the, the bureaucrats, and that's what they are, they might be Bureaucrats that have some sort of uh, literacy in cinema uh, are more open to being like, well let's try a risky project. So when we sent in to, when we sent in the script, uh, you know, four months later we got back uh, notes from them, and the this, the CMC in, in France sent us back notes, and they're like, no, 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 you need to fix this. This is bad. Why are you doing this? It seems weird. Like, you know, I can't remember what it was, but it was a lengthy, like, pan of our piece, which we <laughs> probably deserved and uh, the the portuguese funding body just sent us back like two sentences the first sentence was like uh, pro seems like a you know brilliant new idea wow ravishing something overly complimentary like that <laughs> and the second sentence was like this film seems like it's not something you'll be able to realize it seems like a like a nightmare that you're you know you're, yeah. you're pursuing on your own or something but uh, i think I think at least the latter was true.
0: <laughs> but then you, I guess, did you have to, con- how did you convince them that it was something that you could make, you know, because it is a film that has so many different ideas and so many different uh, styles, I think, to it. It's mm-hmm. just um, crazy. Like, how do, you, how do you neatly package a film with so many themes, uh, you know, in a way that you yourself can make sense of it, even while you're directing it if that.
1: Yeah, I mean I'm not sure for the the, the element of convincing the, the 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 funding bodies. I'm not really totally sure and I think that it's a bit of the role of the producer but also uh looking back at our previous work we had often been working with what was clearly incredibly anemic budgets to make things that were um Somewhat sort of spectacular, and uh, I I mean, in the sort of most uh, basic version of that word, like that, there's spectacle. That there's this sort of like Hollywood imagery. Um, So I think that we had we were able to convince people a little bit on on the basis of that, and they look at awards and these other types of things. But then for ourselves, uh, I I I think it really the film only became something that was somewhat cogent and somewhat concise and watchable through probably most filmmakers deal with this, but through uh, um, a series of of revisions and uh, reorientations to the subjects as we went along. A lot of the previous films that we've done, we would shoot a little bit. we shoot mostly on film, shoot a little bit, then go home and think for three months and then you know you're kind of quote-unquote stuck with the footage that you shot uh you've spent some film you spent some people's time you spent some money and so then we would try to basically go and do like reshoots but we would do that three times and that was like the way we just made movies and with this one they kind of threw us into the we were dealing with a little bit of a bigger crew and and with a more conventional production structure they kind of just threw us in there like you're shooting for five weeks straight yeah. we had never done this before yeah. it, uh, the shoot was a fiasco it was it was <laughs> bad the script was there and the, and the final script that you see or the final whatever the story that you see in the film and, and most of the elements were already there but um, being able to execute that uh on set, let's say, on location or whatever, was not something that we were up to the task of doing. So then when we got back, we looked at the the, the footage, like a, a friend of ours had done an assembly edit, you know, so we could sort of take stock and we wanted to, like, kill ourselves. It was just awful. <laughs> it was awful, 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 awful. Uh, and I think we were thinking of just, like, okay, we'll... we'll I don't even know what we were thinking, but... We ended up taking off four months to do other other work and other things and just put it put it away and when we came back we had to um we had already sort of signed up to do uh, some degree of post production like the dogs and the, the the soccer games uh are largely green screen are largely composite so we had already kind of like primed to go into this sort of stage of painting and sort of like um uh uh, yeah, bricolage it, like, and assembly.
0: spectacular a little bit, like you said, you know, like earlier when you are talking about how this is sort of uh, based off spectacle, a lot of the VFX work that you did kind of brought that feeling, I felt.
1: For sure, yeah. And I think that that basically, again, because we are idiots who are drawn <laughs> to that kind of imagery, as soon as we start to get a little bit of that, like, um uh, uh Going and bringing yeah. it to life on our on our on our editing computer screens, that gave us a little bit more momentum and excitement. But it also gave us uh, the awareness of, I mean, you know, the phrase like, f- fix it in poster or whatever. It's yeah. like, well, we really were sort of like, we've got all this green screen imagery. We've got some time to to rethink how we could use it, and we have this appetite for playing with stock imagery uh, and other sorts of like secondary imagery that we could sort of buy or source from somewhere else. And so that helped us basically start to um, suture together like the you know sort of broken pieces of what we had initially set out to, to film, but in a way that didn't feel, and hopefully doesn't feel to the audience, but didn't feel like uh, false or some sort of band-aid. It's like using the stock imagery really uh, it's so Stock imagery constitutes uh, in in real life, so to speak, uh, the kind of imagery that's used in these like Brexit ads or propaganda ads or in these uh, medical uh, infomercials or whatever and so pulling in this kind of uh secondary imagery and buying it became a very like interesting um and quite inspiring way to sort of both save the film but also ground it in a sort of image economy that is is kind of the reality of of the world that Dementino is living in yeah
0: so why did you like decide to tell this story um there's, you know, as I said, there's a lot going on to it. One of your, Diamantino himself or Diamantino is uh, pretty reminiscent of a particular soccer player who uh, we won't like name. But um, why, why was this the uh, the story that you guys felt that you really needed to tell at this present moment in time? Um, sure. I mean, I think that dovetails with what
1: we were just saying. Um, but just in general, for all of uh, all of. Gabriel and I's films and our films apart, we've been pretty fixated on pop culture. Yeah. I mean, that's what drew us to the cinema in general in the right. first place. Is this sort of like this sort of like common art, the sort of base art, the most like popular art form. Um, and so while we had been dealing with that kind of imagery for other sort of, uh, I guess sort of iconic stories throughout so time, a lot of the films were sort of like trans um, transhistorical in in nature we were like why don't we try to do something that's situated in the present and what would be a way to sort of uh, respond to this sort of overwhelming 24/7 like inundation of news and whatever you want to call it buzz yeah. wor- you know like social just the media, social so, media yeah. like just the 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 deluge of information, as 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 useless or helpful as it might be, uh, and we wanted to sort of you know work with with uh, a character or a human experience in that. So we thought, who would be at the center of that? Oh, it's probably a celebrity. Like, who is more often manipulated by all these different social pressures than a celebrity to sort of respond to? What do you think about this crisis, or what do you think right. about you know? Um, the whole world of Twitter, et cetera. So we were looking around at at different uh, um, references for that. And I think that we were also interested in, in in newer forms of of celebrity, and so the Kardashians sort of stood out as like, okay, that could be a possible yeah. reference, but they're a little hard to find the the humanity there, say, yeah, the humanity. and yeah. and. <laughs> I, you know, I this is just an aside, but I am so surprised that there has not been a a big film about reality TV. I know there was, like, Garone made a film, and I watched some show called, like... Uh, it was about, like, The Bachelor, like a fictional version of The Bachelor. But it's, like, it's strange that someone hasn't made, like, a... Yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, but so we were kind of going down that, that path, and we were like, ah, I think we are not maybe... Literally enough in it, like a lot of my friends, they just watch reality TV, and I was like, they should make that film. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm not someone who can speak to that. Not that I know sports well either, but as we started to look around for other uh, icons that could sort of be this weird intersection of all these different, yeah. again, uh, cultural phenomenons, cultural pressures, and like a sort of distorting presence to those things... We came across two Foster Wallace texts, David Foster Wallace texts. One which is called uh, Roger Federer as Religious Experience, which is, uh, speaks about, uh, they're both about tennis, which uh, Wallace was obsessed with but, um, and played. Uh, but the first one is about sports as basically being the last sort of uh, bastion of um, of technical skill by a human that sort of exceeds what we think humans can possibly yeah. do and therefore gives the spectators of the sport a sort of transcendental experience, a religious experience. Right. That this used to be the the sort of uh, um, realm of, of artists who could make a, a statue or a painting that was so lifelike or so beautiful, but that now with the you know, the turn of art to something that's more conceptual uh, and also with religion sort of waning at least in certain parts of the world, um, that athletes really kind of are are our last sort of demigods or yeah. whatever, and, and that they're you know they're I think in the opening lines of the film like that their tennis court or their football field or soccer field or whatever you want to call it is the sort of new Dionysian stage or the new church or the new cathedral or whatever. so we had that text and then Another text by him, which is called How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart, which is um, about a tennis star who is like a prodigy that he was obsessed with and kind of like, I think, like had a crush on. She was like his peer. And he was always like, how is she so good? You know, at age 14, she's like a master or whatever they, they call the, you know, the great tennis greats. Um, and she gets in a car accident, career ends, and she writes a tell-all. And he's like, I know this tell-all is going to be trashy, but I can't resist knowing like what made her a genius. Yeah. And he reads the book, and it's absolutely the most vapid, innocuous. Like, there's no I in team. There's, you know, it's like there's just nothing. There's no, there's no expression of genius, or even an expression of humanity, really. Right. Uh, and so, see. Uh, He comes up with this thesis that like I would afford some athletes uh, their genius. Uh, is a sort of, like, emptiness of the mind. So we, 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 we grabbed from the two of those uh, inspirations that that could be somehow... Somewhere between those two would be the interesting germ for uh, a character and then that mixed with all of the other bullshit I was just talking about with celebrity culture and stuff. And then, finally, as we were going back to the first question or whatever question it was about, you know... Uh, uh, working in a European model um, was, okay, we want to talk about the rise of the right and uh, and the sort of Euro crisis going on right now. We also have financing from Portugal. So wait a minute. Athlete, empty-headed, cultural icon, Portugal. Okay, we know what the movie is. And then we had this actor who... Um, uh, Gabriel had worked with before Carlo Duccato, who's just amazing. He's that I I feel a hundred percent about. And uh, Miguel Gomes has worked with him as well. And he just it all clicked, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we, we were fortunate there.
0: He hit it. Um, I'd like to ask, you know, you 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 talk you talk a little bit about your partner uh, in directing. Uh, what it's it seems like uh, you do a lot of co-directing. Uh, is Why is that? Like, what do you see is the value of having sort of, uh, two minds behind the camera over just like, because it seems a lot harder in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. I think, um, to actually have two people sharing a vision than just one people, one person in charge.
1: Sure. I think, um, I think probably the first, like, you know, most honest answer is that it wasn't something that we had, um you know sort of calculated ahead of time it was sort of we're friends let's try to do something we didn't know that what we i think the first one we made i mean i guess i should say i know the first one i made but there's a there's an aspect of kind of forgetting exactly the the circumstances was actually for like a performance festival and it was just gabriel and i and we went to brazil and we had one other friend who had never made films and never even operated the camera before operate the camera. And it was just sort of like a way to be together and try something new. I think we are often embracing a degree of amateurism and then I think there's also an unconscious embrace of it where we just like didn't know that this is this is not the way you're supposed to do things. I mean, I had gone to cinema school so it's like I know and you know, I'm not living under a rock. I know that most movies are directed by one person, but when you're kind of doing it for the first time, you're you're not really sort of attuned to that, like, oh, where's the third AD or whatever. I mean, there was just three of us, but, like, you don't really know the hierarchy that um, has been really sort of well-oiled and and, and put in place by the Hollywood hegemonists. Like, yeah. you're just not... So that, that first came from an unconscious place, but then I think as we developed, yes we had developed a, um, a creative rapport and I started working with another friend that uh, we worked together in a different way and they were really, really, um, uh, I don't know, just beautiful experiences and I, I think made the ideas better but I think there was also maybe even in growing anxiety at least on my part of like, oh shit, man, I can't do this on my own. It became a sort of insecurity of like, oh, I feel like with another person we can encourage each other to take risks or we can, you know, censor one another, critique one another in a way that like me just sitting in front of my computer or in front of two actors, I'm going to not have the same sort of confidence. I'm not going to have that person to like hold their hand and and, and them, them to hold my hand back or whatever. I think that now that I've, you know, uh, made a couple films. I better understand that a lot of directors develop really, I think, pretty intimate relationships with their um, producers or their their uh, actors or other other people, and that's something that excites me, and I would like to try to do. But for us, the the surrogate was sort of each other, and the co-directing thing.
0: It seems like uh, it's nice to have like an immediate bouncing board there for you, like while you have to make these decisions. Um,
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's also just like, um, we're like the films that we, we, we make, we're often, again, making with like insufficient budgets and we are taking a lot of risks on different levels, whether it's like financially or in terms of how we're representing things. And I don't know, we're, we're fragile people too. So we're like getting sick or we're like yeah. getting upset. And it's like, it's basically like almost an insurance measure that there's like two of us. Like yeah. if you sent like a you know, a ship into outer space to do some thing that you weren't sure how it was going to work. You'd probably send two people rather than one, or yeah. I don't know. So, but yes, it also can be a problem. I mean, with both of these guys, I've, uh, the other guy's name is Alex Carver, but, um, uh, we've just worked together really well, and I, I feel more and more fortunate the more and more I realize that that's, I guess, not often the case when directors work together. Um... And I think working with, like, three directors, all of a sudden, that would, to me, that strikes me as, as insane. So I get that people <laughs> thinking that, like, two is weird. It's like, for me, I'm like, two is so natural, I don't but three, you know, like, so. I, three is weird. Yeah, I don't three think is
0: weird. But <laughs> um, could be interesting. But, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's yeah. I guess I also just want to ask, um, you know, you have made these shorts, or you did make a, a lot of shorts internationally with... Uh, these same collaborators how did making shorts inform uh you when it came time to make features two of the films i made before are actually features and two of them are shorts Mm.
1: gabriel is the one who sort of did like 40 40 shorts shorts in a row um but i think especially actually even doing the features for me was useful because it was just like you kind of put them out there and we had some nice reception like for me it was it was great to i was happy with the way they turned out more or less and to show it these you know uh, nice festivals with with receptive audiences, but ultimately they are not. They weren't um, um, reaching the public the way and communicating and maybe moving the public as much as as this film. And so that, let's say, if if we could describe them as somewhat failures, the failures of that kind of made me feel okay to just like keep yeah taking he, the risks yeah, yeah. and then the the small successes of those films gave me you know just as anyone who probably the 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 normal answer for shorts is like well, I found out I could do these three things yeah. well and then i finally I put them into the feature but basically we we threw out a lot of the sort of um uh the main um sort of modus operandi for, 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 that we had used for the previous uh, shorts and features. Like we sort of almost started from scratch in a certain way and that ended up, like I said, we, with the previous films we were usually shooting a little bit then taking a break, shooting a little bit just as one thing that's a little bit unconventional but that had served us. Doing the five week conventional feature shoot blindsided us and then it basically became this sort of like well how do we reinvent in post so for us it's a it was a very new process and i don't know how much the previous films on a sort of like yeah specific level helped or something
0: well maybe it was just like having gone through those experiences you know like you said and with like shorts and with your previous features uh whatever failures or whatever things that even you were tired of doing at that point yeah you're like okay you know like let's try something new let's uh let's do this in a whole new weird way uh which is you know like your your movie is very unique and um it's evident that uh it's the result of a lot of like intense experimentation i think Mm. um So I guess that, you know, just to wrap things up here, um, I'd like to ask you something I ask all my guests, and that's uh, if you had any, like, golden nugget of advice for aspiring filmmakers, um, what would it be? I mean, I guess it's something to
1: the effect of, I don't know if this is just a a series of platitudes, but it's like for me, what got me out of sort of um, some dark holes is like to learn by doing, like just make the projects, don't sit around thinking about them just like cinema is something that can be a very social experience it can be a very hands-on experience go on location work with quote-unquote real humans like get messy make mistakes learn from the mistakes but just like get out there and, 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 and do it rather than getting stuck in sort of like I need to do the 10th version of my script or whatever. Like, the script for Diamantino, there was... We wrote it in four weeks, one or two months before we started shooting, which caused a huge amount of problems. But... Um, but I, I'm glad that we didn't spend, you know, years yeah. developing. Uh, and then I think the other thing that I... I, I taught a semester of... of cinema, uh, or filmmaking recently at Rutgers. Um, oh, okay, cool. And was just, of course, everyone's entering into, into movies, like probably from an early age, uh, and then they're refining or they're, they're sort of shaping their tastes as they get into whatever it is, high school or college. But I think things become more and more, uh, sort of niche where people are like, I'm a documentary filmmaker yeah. or I want to make movies that look like Wes Anderson or I'm really like anti any sort of commercial thing. I want to do, you know, like these sort of kind of dogmatic ideas or, or, or fairly um, somewhat superficial delimitations of of what cinema can be or what cinema can t- be to them and for me it was really great to speak to my students and sort of be like let's look at the earliest cinema like the you know the old like cinema of attractions like melier and uh, uh and edison and so on like let's look at the train coming into the station and the waves hitting the shore just like that early version of spectacle even though yes those films are i can agree are kind of boring yeah. to watch or to think of how exciting that might have been and at then the time, yeah. let's look at memes and let's look at the huh. vine videos or whatever. It's like that that the the multifarious cultures of, of of moving image are are pretty vital and they're pretty broad and that if you're able to kind of um, reorient your perspective or open up your perspective to seeing how vast the possibilities of image making are, and also be aware of the problems of it. But like to see how vast they are, then, in turn, if you are interested in being an image maker working in 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 that uh, in those cultures in the in those economies, you can kind of be like, well, there must be a somewhat commensurately vast uh, amount of ways to make those images, mm-hmm. and that sort of starts to free you up from being like, oh, I don't need to just like. Do the assignment with my four friends or the first film i make out of college i need to wait until i get the sundance whatever thing yep. it's just like there's so many ways to 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 make
0: a mistake yeah. <laughs> to try to make a mistake <laughs> and to learn from yeah. it too so that's the best way to learn well great man thank you so much for sitting down with us today um and Good luck with the rest of TIFF. I think you're have you even had a screening yet or
1: I think there was the, the some press
0: screenings, but okay. we haven't done the the public screenings yet. Well, your midnight screening, good luck with it. Thank I'm you. Sure it's gonna go over very well. I'm knock on board. very nervous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Alright, Daniel, cool. cool. Take it easy. Thanks, Thank man. you. Take care. Thanks for listening. As always, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the No Film School Podcast on whatever platform you use. Uh, If that platform is iTunes, you can go ahead and give us a five-star rating or whatever rating you want if you like us. And be sure to stay tuned for Indie Film Weekly every Thursday. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. You can follow No Film School at No Film School. And we'll see you on Thursday.